We are slowly making our way through this uh, wonderful gospel. And so, where we have been going so far in this gospel, one of the things we've been learning, I hope we've been learning in in the book of Luke, is the very thing that Luke has called us to, or the very thing that Luke has been writing about. And he's been right. He wrote this gospel to a particular individual, and his reason was so that you may be certain about the things that you've been taught. In other words, I want you to know for an absolute fact what you've been taught. One of the things that we encounter today is the identity and of the person of Jesus Christ. And there are all sorts of opinions, and there are all sorts of views, and there are all sorts of ideas out there regarding the person of Jesus Christ, whether just... Just get on the well. Don't go on the internet and look that up. So there is probably no view, no matter how strange or odd one may think, that has not been put forward. Every every sort of strange idea has been put put forward about the person of Jesus Christ. But Luke writes, I want you to know who he is, and I want you to be certain of it, so that when you encounter some weird idea or even some very plausible idea that doesn't line up with Scripture, I want you to know exactly the things that you have been taught. And so as we encounter the person of Jesus Christ in the book of Luke, we are now entering into chapter 4, which from here on out we'll be looking at the ministry of Christ and coming to an understanding of how Christ came to seek and to save the lost. But let me give you a little bit of context so that we know where we're going. As I mentioned last week, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 113, really form a, a unit, if you will. And that it is all those passages of text are tied together by the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And we need to make sure that we understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And we've at, we talked a little bit about last week about what we mean by Jesus is the Son of God, because Son of God can mean a lot of different things in the Bible. For instance, Israel was called the Son of God. Individuals were called the Son of God. But when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, we're talking about Jesus in a unique way, or we talk about Jesus as the Son of God in a unique way. That is, he is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, that he has always existed um, from eternity past. It is he who brought all the kingdoms or brought all of creation into being and how God the Father actually calls Jesus God. And we saw that in, he, in the book of Hebrews. So Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, the Son of God, we are talking about him as co-equal, co-eternal, creator of all things um, of all things, period. And uh, so that's what we are talking about when we speak of Jesus as the Son of God. Well, then we might ask, have to ask ourselves this question, or this is where we went last week. I forgot I'm still in context and review. But where, we're, where we've been then is, what are his credentials? Anybody can make a claim. I can get up here and say, well, I'm the Queen of England. 
<laughs> Lots of people can make claims. What are the credentials? What backs up the claim? So that's kind of where we were last week and also where we'll be going uh, today as well. And some of the things we saw last week, uh, the credentials of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, is that, number one, he identifies with the people. And we saw that he gets down into the muck and the mire with us. That is, he is not some aloof king creator who's off in the heaven somewhere or kind of isolates himself, but he gets into the mess with us. That's one thing. The other thing, another thing that we saw is that Jesus, as the Son of God, fulfills all righteousness. And we talked about this a few weeks ago as well as last week. And that is not only does Jesus take away your sin, but Jesus imparts to you his righteousness. So you are not only sinless, but you are righteous. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Understand this, folks. Your righteousness is in heaven. All right. So even when you mess up, and I know, well, I do. I know you guys may not. But when we mess up, all right. And you say, oh, my goodness, how can your righteousness is fixed in heaven. All right. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is your righteousness. So we saw that. We also saw then that Jesus is called the son of God and uh, he is affirmed by two witnesses. And we know that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. So he had two witnesses. Who were his two witnesses? God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Pretty good references. If you're looking at a resume and you got God backing you up, I think you're pretty good. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came down and uh, in the form of a dove upon him. The other thing we saw is uh, that he is the son of God, but he is related to Adam. And we saw this in his genealogy. And it's very interesting. And I think this is really important how Luke gives us the genealogy of, of Jesus and how Luke, unlike Matthew, Matthew also gives us a genealogy, but Luke gives us a genealogy going all the way back to Adam. Remember, Matthew goes back to Abram. So we see Jesus as the king of the Jews. Luke, however, tells us that, or takes us all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And so, this, I think, is crucial for us to understand. Jesus, as the son of God, represents all of mankind. And as Adam represented mankind and failed bringing death, now Jesus, as the final Adam, represents all mankind. And as we touched on last week, and we will touch on again today, that all who are in Christ Jesus live. All who are in Adam die, and all who are in Christ Jesus live. So that's kind of where we've been. We've been looking at what are the credentials of Jesus as the Son of God, and I think those are pretty decent credentials. Here's where I want to go today. So by way of preview, this is where I want to go, and I need to make some preliminary remarks. We're all probably, many of us are familiar with the temptations of Jesus. You've probably heard it in Sunday school if you were raised in the church. If you haven't, somewhere along the way, you've probably heard about the temptations of Jesus Christ. Um, if you haven't, well, welcome. You're going to hear something very, very crucial to our understanding of the nature and person of Christ. But here's what I want us to do today. I believe that it is crucial that we understand the temptations of Christ and that we view them through the lens of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where another sinless, in this case, couple, but really sinless individual, Adam, 
where they faced temptations as well. That Adam, as representative of mankind, entered into temptation, succumbed to the temptation, and hence through Adam all die. Another Adam, a second Adam, last Adam, the Son of God, enters into a similar temptation. He is victorious, and he then enters his ministry as a Son of God. And I'm not just, you're going, well, where did you get all that? I'll tell you where I got all that. I get that from the Bible. Pretty good, huh? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22 tell us this. Speaking of the resurrection. For by a man came death, that is, by Adam came death. By man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Do you understand that? That all who are in Adam die, and all who are in Christ shall live. And then over in chapter 42, chapter 15, 42 through 49, we read this. So it is with the resurrection of the day dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So basically, he's saying this. Those who are in Adam, you will die. Those who are in Christ shall live. Then we also see a similar thing. Paul picks this up also in in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, um, where we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. I'll jump ahead to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience they were, they were made sinners, so by one man's obedience they will be made righteous. Now, the law came to increase. I'm going to stop there. Basically, here's the thing. Through Adam, death came. Through Christ, life comes. That's the point. Through through Adam's sin, all became guilty of Adam's sin. Through Christ's righteousness, all could be made righteous. I want us to see this temptation through the lens of Genesis chapter 3. That Jesus is the last Adam who goes into the wilderness. Adam and Eve were in a garden paradise. Jesus entered into a wilderness. Adam and Eve were surrounded by 
by luxury and fruit trees and a garden um, environment. And Jesus was in a place where that was barren. They were filled with everything they could need. Jesus was deprived of even the most fundamental things such as bread. And so after the victory in the wilderness... Jesus will begin his ministry. He's going to enter into the wilderness. He is going to confront the temptations, uh, the barrage of Satan. And afterwards, he's going to walk into the, um, to the synagogue and say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to free the captives and to proclaim the good news to the people. And he will say, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. And then he will go about casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, and preaching the gospel of forgiveness. So this is, this is a very crucial aspect as Jesus prepared for his ministry. Are you with me? I know that was quite a lot there. So let's look at um, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. As Follow along with me as I read this text. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God. So the first thing we see then is after Jesus' baptism, where uh, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom, you are, in whom I'm well pleased. He is led out into the wilderness. I think it's Mark, one of the other Gospels, says actually the Spirit compelled him or actually pushed him into the wilderness. And so we need to establish, I think this is important, because we need to establish why Jesus is in the wilderness and why he is undergoing this trial. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. It is God's will, God's providence that Jesus is in this particular circumstance. He is full of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he is led by the Holy Spirit. When we talk about being full of the Holy Spirit, just that the idea has this idea, has the idea of being permeated or being um, overflowing with the Holy Spirit, being complete with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he is entering in, into this temptation not because of some sin or because he was in the wrong place. Sometimes we're tempted to sin because we're in the wrong place or where we ought not to be. The Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. When we encounter temptation, oftentimes it is because we are in the wrong place. But in this particular case, Jesus is being led by the Holy Spirit. He is not in the wilderness by accident. He is not out of place. He is walking in utter obedience with the will of God. And yet he encounters trial. 
There's a couple things that stand out to me. Number one, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's walking in obedience, and he's still encountering trial. The next thing that's interesting is he's just coming off a real spiritual high, kind of a spiritual mountaintop experience. That is, namely his baptism. And God, the Father, is speaking out of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, if you're kind of doing something and God spoke out of heaven and said, man, I'm really happy with what you're doing, that would be kind of a cool moment. So it is after this spiritual mountaintop experience and being in complete obedience to the Heavenly Father that Jesus enters into this trial. So there are some lessons for us. First of all, trials may follow spiritual peaks. So in other words, when you encounter God in a very real and glorious way, praise God, whether it's at a conference, maybe here at church, or in your own devotional time, or some other type of thing, you, you go and you, you just get blessed and you just sense the presence of God. You ever had that? Ever just totally be blessed? You're just like, like you're walking on clouds? All right. Praise God. And I'm not here to be kind of a buzzkill or anything like that. I'm just saying that be on your guard. Be ever vigilant. Because even there, even then, in that place, we may be vulnerable. Sometimes when we're going through it and things are rugged, we, we tend to be more vigilant. We tend to be less vigilant when everything is kind of going well. So here's one lesson. Sometimes, just always be vigilant. I guess that's a good lesson. Also, sometimes when we are encountering trial, understand this, this may actually be God leading us into a place where we are being tested. Galatians chapter 5.16, which I read earlier today, says this, I say walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's pretty straightforward. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the, the desires of the flesh. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that you won't be tempted. It just says walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It did not say that you will not be tempted to gratify the desires of the flesh. But Jesus walking in the Spirit overcomes the temptations of the flesh. So we, walking in the Spirit, also, um, though tempted, will be victorious. We need to set our minds and our affections on the things of God. So how does a person walk in the Spirit? How does a person uh, be filled with the Spirit? Well, um, even though that's kind of a different message, just real quickly, obedience, doing what God has called us to do. And it's pretty plain. We know the things that God has called us to do and not to do. If you're not certain, um, read the Bible. Or if you're confused about a particular thing, you know what? We as a church would love to sit down and talk and say, here are some of the things that God says about these particular matters. So how do we, how do we walk in the Spirit? How are we filled with the Spirit? By setting our minds and our affections upon the things of God would be a great place to start. And then doing them. So Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and led out into the wilderness. Now, he encountered three temptations, and I'll just go through them. Uh, one by one. So the first temptation. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
there is a, a testing of whether or not we can trust God to provide. Jesus is hungry from fasting, fasting 40 days. I know this is October fast. We ask you to fast four days. And some of us, after one meal, are like, oh, right. Jesus, 40 days, he's at his weakest. And the tempter comes along and says, if you're the son of God, command these stone, this stone to become bread. Now, many commentators and translators have, I think, accurately stated that this is not so much an if, like a question, if you are the Son of God, but more of a statement of fact, perhaps even a taunt. In other words, not so much if you're the Son of God, but so, you're the Son of God, are you? I heard the voice. I was there at the baptism. I heard that voice from heaven. I saw the Holy Spirit. So... You, you, you're the Son of God, huh? Yeah, it appears that as the Son of God, your father's kind of left you out here all on his own, hasn't he? He hasn't provided too well for you. So I'm just wondering how you, as the Son of God, could be left alone by your Heavenly Father. That just doesn't seem right. Maybe he doesn't care for you. Hmm. You're the Son of God. And yet here you are, deprived of even the most basic necessities. It appears that your Heavenly Father has left you without provision. By the way, this is nothing new. Isn't this exactly what Satan tempted Eve with? That God was not good. That God was depriving her of something. Oh, you mean you've got all these trees out here that you can eat of, but there's that one. There's that one that God says, don't touch that one. Wow. So you mean God is holding back on you? Here's the thing. God knows that the day you eat of it, you'll be like him and you'll know good and evil. That's why he's holding out on you. God's not really very good. I know. Look, don't look at all those other trees. Look at the one thing that God's withholding from you. And you think that he's trustworthy, that he's going to provide for you? You notice this. She's surrounded. Both her and Adam are surrounded by food everywhere. There's the one. Now all of a sudden, that's the focus of her attention. That one tree. Wow. You know, God's holding out on you. That's the problem. He's keeping back his best. It appears that God is treating you poorly. See, this is an attack on God's goodness. If you really loved God, if God really loved you, I don't think you would be hungry. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be without. If God really loved you, then what are you doing here starving in the wilderness? That just doesn't make any sense. I think you've got a problem, Jesus, since after all, you're the Son of God. Jesus had studied the Scriptures, and he is God the Son. He knew exactly this temptation. Again, he had seen it before, 
by reading. Uh, he probably witnessed it um, firsthand. But he'd also, as a human, read about it in the book of Genesis. And he realizes that this is a fruitless temptation. And so he responds, and here's his first response. By the way, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8.3, which is a which recalls God's goodness and care for Israel in the wilderness. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, here's the idea. The people of Israel were in need and they were hungry. And they called out to God and God provided manna for them. And this was to remind them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here, here's one of the things that I believe Jesus is pointing out. The people in Israel, they didn't die due to lack of bread. They died because of lack of obedience. Yes, they were also in a wilderness area. Their problem was not lack of provision. Their problem was lack of obedience to their Heavenly Father, who had done great things in their midst. And Jesus is saying, see, the problem isn't food or not food. The priority is, do we obey our God who has delivered us and saved us? Jesus goes on later in the Gospel and says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my food. So, living in light of God's care, um, Jesus realizes and, and affirms that God's word is the most fundamental thing. He tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. and All these other things will be added to us. He, he says, why do you worry about food? And why do you worry about clothes? Don't you know birds of the air, they get food and flowers of the field? They're, they're arrayed better than Solomon and all of his splendor. And yet birds are here today and gone tomorrow. Flowers uh, come up and bloom. And then they're, don't you know your Heavenly Father knows your needs? So here's the priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. These other things, your Heavenly Father knows you have need of them. So that's the first one. And uh, score one for Christ, zero for the enemy. Temptation number two is questioning the plan of God. And so Satan takes Jesus up onto a high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, all these kingdoms will be yours if you will fall down and worship me. There's a lot of ink spilled over what mountain this was. I don't know. doesn't tell us. I don't know if it's that important. But, but I like this, this. The temptation for me is, is very blunt. There's no subtleties here. This is just a straight-up business transaction. There's nothing hidden in this one. There are no little covert ideas or secret things. No, they're the kingdoms of the world. Now worship me. That's the deal. It's a straight-up business transaction. No deceptions. And you is emphatic. In other words, yours. Yours. It's all yours. Look at it. It sparkles and it's shiny and it's beautiful. And it's yours. 
James tells us in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is exactly where Satan is going. Tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Yours! It can all be yours! Too often we respond, we respond with mine. Mine. It's all mine. Look what can be yours. Because after all, you're the Son of God. I heard the heavenly voice. But I'm looking, what are you doing in the wilderness? <laughs> it seems as though your heavenly Father can't really provide much for you. You're out here in the wilderness? I can give you a kingdom. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Looks like your Heavenly Father can give you, what, rocks and dirt and scorpions. Why would you settle for rocks and dirt and scorpions when I've got all the kingdoms of the world and they can be yours? All you need to do is fall down and worship me. That's it. This is a classic sales pitch, isn't it? You've all encountered it because the product is presented prior to the terms, right? You go looking for a new car and they show you all the shiny, neat stuff, right? It's not until later that the terms are revealed and sometimes they're not even revealed all that clearly. You know, 472 easy payments of... Oh, it's for the rest of your life. But look, yours. It's just a classic business transaction. You can have everything that you could ever desire. But the terms are this. You need to deny your Heavenly Father. You can have everything you could ever desire. You just need to abandon God the Father. The response is this. You shall worship and serve God alone. This comes out of Deuteronomy 6.13. In other words, God is the only one worthy of worship. This reminds me Psalm chapter 2. And by the way, while I'm looking that up, you should remember that on Wednesday nights we're studying in the book of Psalms. Charlie's teaching that. I would encourage you to come. It is, um, it has been really, really good. I don't know if we're going to do Psalm two, but let me just give you a brief unpacking of Psalm chapter two. You don't need to necessarily turn there. I'm just going to give you a brief overview of Psalm chapter two because I think it's relevant to the temptation. In Psalm chapter 2, it begins with why are the nations rage and why are the peoples in an uproar? In other words, all these people are in rage and an uproar saying, let us throw off God's shackles. He's restraining us. It's God who's keeping us down. God is the one who's keeping us from enjoying life. It is God who's keeping us from doing us what we want to do. And so they rebel against God. And I love the verse that says, and God sits in heaven and laughs. <laughs> really? Why are the nations in an uproar? And so the nations are in an uproar. God laughs at their, their scoffing, scoffing, and then he offers his son. And he offers his son the kingdoms of the world in verse 8. 
And he tells the nations, you need to heed the Son, lest he judge you. I think it's also relevant to note in the book of in the book of Revelation, chapter eleven, verse fifteen, the Sabbath trumpet. And as you know, this is, uh, I believe, the return of Christ. It says this. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So what does it all have to do with the second temptation? Satan offers a rebellious worldly kingdom. But the truth of the matter is this. The Son will inherit the kingdoms, judge the nations, and then the kingdoms of, of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. The kingdoms belong to Christ. Satan offers a rebellious kingdom that despises God and despises the Son of God, and God promises the Son a kingdom that will obey and worship and love Him forever and ever and ever. This is a terrible deal. Some principles we can take from this. Number one, only God is to be worshipped. I know that you all know that, but only God, God of the Bible, is to be worshipped. After all, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? We need to ask ourselves that question. What will it profit to gain the whole world and lose our very soul? Idolatry is rampant. Idolatry is is in us. I know I say this a lot. John Calvin said that man is a veritable idol factory. I agree with him over and over and over again on that. We just create idols all the time. Someone and I were at a conference a couple of weeks ago. It was on um, worship um, and how... on worship. It was very good. But one of the speakers entitled his, uh, his session called that worship is rehab for idolaters. And mainly what we're talking about is corporate public worship. When we gather today, I know that all of life is worship. This was focused on corporate public worship. And that corporate public worship is rehab for idolaters. In other words, when we come into corporate public worship, it should be formative in the sense that it causes us to lay aside all of the things and all of the idolatry that we have lifted up through the week and remember that God alone is our God alone. And that's it. It's so easy. So, and so oftentimes in worship we get so caught up in, in trying to appeal to the masses that we forget the 
about appealing to our Heavenly Father and worship. We try, I don't know that we always succeed, but we try very hard to make God and Jesus Christ the center of everything we do here. We read scripture, we try to pray godly prayers, we try to sing godly songs, and we try to keep our minds focused upon the things of God because I know good and well that we've all been slammed by things out there and we've dragged our idols perhaps to the doorstep or even in. And so we need to realize that we that worship is rehab for idolaters. And so I'm here today to say hello. My name is John Lake and I'm an idolater. And as we are formed here in corporate public worship, yes, then when we go out and we are encountering families and jobs and employers and employees and uh, kids that don't behave and you know, parents that are aging and all of these, these things and We have been formed to worship God and hold Him up and worship Him and serve Him alone. And hopefully that transforms our daily lives. The other thing we should note here is that we are to, Jesus says that you are to worship and serve Him alone. Service goes along with worship. And usually service in the Bible has, has to do with this idea of all the stuff that goes with, with worship. Okay, so we can worship, but there's a lot of things that happen in worship. And so like in the Old Testament, probably things like offering incense, you know, they burn the incense and they put the, the bread on the, on the tables in the tabernacle or in the temple. And there was a lot of service that went along. These were the things that went along with worship. And it just occurred to me that worship and service go together. In other words, When we gather together, there are certain things we do. Number one, we gather together. And we pray. And we take communion. And we sing corporately together. We might recite scripture together or affirm our faith together. And we gather together. There are things we do. So the person who says, well, I worship God alone when I'm fishing on Sunday mornings out on the lake. That's great. Yes, you can worship God wherever you are. But there are there is service that goes along with worship. There are things we do in worship. You will worship and serve the Lord alone. The third temptation. So the third temptation is a question of God's protection. It takes Jesus up to the highest point of the temple and says basically, well, not basically, says jump. After all, God will protect you, won't he? You are the Son of God, aren't you? I heard the voice. You are the Son of God. You can jump. Go ahead. After all, you're about to venture into ministry, and you're going to be doing some really interesting things. Can you be certain that your Heavenly Father is really going to protect you in all that you do? So before you venture into ministry, you should be certain that God is with you. The sly thing here is now Satan uses scripture to justify his temptation. Just jump. You won't die. After all, the Bible says, 
that God will give his angels charge over you. And the Bible says they will bear you up. That's what the Bible says. Go ahead. Jump. You won't die. Anybody ever remember another time when Jesus told somebody, you won't die? I told you, you have to filter this through, through Genesis 3, don't you? Eve said, well, if we eat of the tree of the fruit, um, God said that we will die in the, day that we eat, well, in the day that we eat of it. And what was this far? You won't die. And so Satan tempts him by using Scripture. You won't die. I, I, I think there's, there's a real subtlety here also, because Jesus is a man. And as a human, if you jump off a high place, you will die. I think part of the temptation here is to kill Christ outside of Calvary. We can just get rid of him here. Calvary is a non-issue. Jesus responds with this, you shall not put the Lord to the test. Coming out of Deuteronomy 6.16, you see Israel in Deuteronomy. Um, the context here is Israel had questioned God for leading them into the wilderness and they demanded that he do so. They demanded some sort of flamboyant action. And many people demanded a sign from Jesus. The response is, do not put the Lord your God to the test. There are a couple of principles that we can apply to this. First of all, how we interpret Scripture. Because there are a lot of folks who will get up and say, well, the Bible says. And they'll read straight out. Just Satan reads right out of the Scripture, takes it verbatim. Doesn't change it. Is what we need to understand. What's the number one rule of Bible interpretation? Context, context, context. Number two rule? Scripture interprets Scripture. And what Satan did was he used the, the Bible out of context and worse, he applied it inconsistently with other Scriptures. There's all kinds of Scriptures in the Bible. You can you can make it say whatever you want it to say, but if we take it in context and we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, we will be in a pretty good place. And the bottom line is this, folks. Testing God is not trusting God. We see this all the time. If you don't mind, I'm going to get a little bit on my hobby horse here. And we see this a lot, especially on very popular ministries um, that seem to have great exposure and they basically say, if you need a miracle, you just need to plant your seed. You know, And if you need money, you just need to plant your seed. And here's how you do it. You give me the money. That's your seed. And then, then you can expect a miracle from God. The reason you haven't gotten a miracle is because you have not contacted me or given to my ministry or something along those lines. Somehow, if you do this, then you can expect God. Do not put God to the test. I expect God to do something. And if he doesn't, well then, I'm not going to follow him. Don't put God to the test.
It's easy to be presumptuous. So we have three temptations. And those three temptations question the provision of God, the plan of God, and the protection of God. They go at the very heart of Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father, and they go straight, and they attack, and the attacks are the same for us. And they will tempt whether God is going to provide for us. Well, I, can I trust God? This is really it. Can I trust God? Will I trust God to do what God said he's going to do? Or will I trust something else? The final verse of this section says, and that When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him for until an opportune time. Uh, translation, he'll be back. The Bible is very clear. Resist the devil and he will flee. But I guarantee you, he will flee. But he'll be back. He always comes back. He'll come back to the day you die. And Jesus was going to encounter temptation again. We see it throughout. Uh, we see it in the garden. We, we see it in a variety of places. I think one of the most significant places was when he's on the cross and people mocked him and said, well, if you're the son of God, come on down. Man, I would have come down. I would have shown him. You think you can do this to me? Really? Let me show you. This is why we needed the second person of the Trinity to be our, our Savior because any human being would have broken He'll be back. So we rejoice in the fact when we overcome temptation, understand this, that he'll be back. Not that we focus on that or stress over that. It's just the reality. If he came back to Christ, he'll come back to us. So Jesus is victorious. And in this victory now, he will go about... um, the ministry that God has called him to. So I'll just conclude with just a couple of quick things and then call it a day. The first, all, first thing is that Jesus walked wherever God led. I would ask you, are you walking with God? Are, are you going where he leads? Are you doing what he's called you to do? And usually that's really simple. Not some big mysterious will of God, but... There are some real basic things. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Maybe we could start there. Are you doing that? And when you're not, are you confessing, Lord, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself? Because God's called us. Confess your sins. I'll forgive them. First thing, walk wherever God leads. Second thing we should note this is that Satan tempts us to to distrust to distrust God's provision and plan and protection. Calls God's very being in, into question. And I know many people have turned away from the Lord saying, Well, you know what, I prayed to God that he would do something and he didn't, and so therefore I'm abandoning him. Really you can't to to what end? What? Like somehow that's gonna make God less God? He's still God, and he will still judge you in the end. Or you can say, God, I don't get this. Somehow, help me to understand what you're doing. I guess the third thing 
which is near and dear to our hearts here, and that is know the Scriptures. Know the Bible. Know it in its context. Know all of it. And know how to use it wisely and accurately. Just this year, I've encountered so many strange things. Two polar opposites. One, everything that Paul wrote, only what Paul wrote is Scripture. Everything else needs to be discarded. Then the other one, nothing that Paul wrote is Scripture. And it all needs to be discarded. Both of those things I've encountered this year. There's all sorts of crazy ideas. Know the Scriptures. How do you know the Scriptures? You're going to only know the Scriptures by reading the Scriptures. And I know some of it is great. You know, everybody loves Romans 8, but sometimes you get just the Second Chronicles and the Book of Numbers, and, and you just work your way through it. Just work your way through it. Just read it. You may find some really exciting things, some of these things. But God's Word, when we read it, is formative. It forms us. It changes us. It transforms us. It helps us grow. This is one of the reasons why we have Bible studies. This is just a plug for Bible studies. It is. Um, but we just don't do them for the sake of doing them. Um, but so that we would be formed in Christ, that we would know the Scriptures. That's why we teach through a book of the Bible at a time. That's why we teach Old Testament and New Testament. That's why we teach all the various genres of the Bible so that you would know the Bible. But if you're only getting it once a week, that's, I'm glad you're at least doing that. Read the Bible all the time. And know it. Study it. Take some classes. Satan knows the Bible. And he, and he knows how to use it. You just need to know the Bible better than he does. Or at least rely upon the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. So let's stand and pray.